This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Good afternoon. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you're listening to the Sunday Afternoon Show with Maud. It is 5 p.m. on Sunday, the 9th of October, and you can join me using the chat function. We can discuss today's topic, which is architecture in schools. Welcome! This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Tune in live at ttradio.org, or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. Good afternoon, fellow educators and dear listeners. This is my 20th radio show as a hostess, and I'm delighted to share this experience in your lovely company. But first, I have to introduce myself to any new listeners. I'm a French citizen of French and West African ancestry. I have lived in the UK since 2008, and I am a professional educator. I work in a secondary state school in North London, where I teach both languages as well as humanities. I also have experience as a teacher in the charity sector. You can follow me on Twitter at Prof Prof MFL. All views are my own. Today I would like to focus on one topic that is very relevant to me as a parent, as an educator, and as a person who works in a school in my daily working life. The podcast and discussion will both be on the topic of architecture in schools. This is mostly relevant to educators in the English-speaking world, people who are interested in design, architecture, well-being, and the way humans occupy and interact with their space and their environment, and also the curious and savvy. Please do not hesitate to contact me online via the chat function or via Twitter at ProfProfMFL. Designing buildings, this is what architecture means. Designing and building buildings. Architecture comes from Old French and Latin and ultimately is a Greek word formed of archi, which means chief, and tecton, which means builder. So an architect is the builder in chief. Now I want you to know a little bit more about my experience of secondary school as a student. So we're going to travel back in time, many, many years ago, and we're going to travel back to a little town in uh, central France. My school was called Jacques Coeur, which is Jack Hart, Jacques Coeur, and it was located in what used to be a seminary. A seminary is a school for people who are going to become priests. So it was a school for boys who want to become priests and who are going to study theology. Um, this was obviously a Catholic institution. 
Now, my um, building was a beautiful building. So if, if you can picture it, imagine a square with an inner courtyard and the square, the building is made of limestone, beautiful limestone, very tall ceiling, very tall windows, a little bit like a Georgian uh, type of architecture, but it's typical 19th century French architecture. So this seminary was built in 1856 and it, it stayed as a seminary for 50 years until France decided to separate church and state in 1905. So from that moment, a lot of um, Catholic institutions were basically transformed into state institutions. So this little seminary stopped welcoming boys to become priests. And instead, the mayor of the town I'm from decided he wanted to create the first national school for professional ladies so école nationale professionnelle de jeunes filles de france so this was basically a very positive feminist uh, intervention from that mayor and he decided to teach women some skills in order to allow them to be able to be domestic um, persons involved in their household or also to find a job so this was a school for girls and then it became a normal state school, a normal lycée, which is the equivalent of a sixth form, in 1960. So I do like the idea that it started as a religious institution for boys, then it became the first school for professional girls, and then it became a normal average state school. So that was the Lycée Jacques Coeur story. Now, obviously, I was very lucky because the building is what we consider a traditional 19th century building, but it was stunning architecture. It was vast. We had a lot of space. And in the middle of the courtyard, there was the chapel. So the chapel had beautiful windows. It was a Gothic type of chapel and it was our cafeteria. So we could just go there. There were tables and chairs, a few um, snacks that we could buy and we could just chill between lessons. I'm, I'm really loving the fact that it was a state school that was accessible to anyone who had s sat their GCSEs and wanted to pursue sixth form education. And I also love the fact that it was the first um, school for professional girls. So this is definitely something to celebrate. Um, the, the aim of that institution when it became a school for girls was to allow them to be able to keep a household going, but also to learn sewing, uh, secretary work and chemistry. So this school building reflects national French history and the evolution of society in France with the uh, advent of girl education, for instance. I love the fact that it's also a building which, which is beautiful, pleasing to the eye and functional. Now, obviously, some buildings were added over the years and when I was there in the 1990s they added a boarding school for girls and also a whole a whole new building that was for learning um, anything to do with working in a hotel and working in services. Now this is my experience of secondary school and high school in architecture in France. Now, when I moved to the UK, I realized that there was also very different types of school buildings. 
most of the school buildings I have visited while in the UK are, for the most famous and the most usually private, historical building. We can all picture Cambridge or Oxford. Um, the cliche would be to compare them to Hogwarts in the Harry Potter series. So imagine beautiful Gothic architecture, 500, sometimes 400 years old, um, tiny, tiny little rooms, but a lot of appeal because of the beauty of the history in the walls. And then you have what we are more familiar and that we could see also in the United States and in other places such as Germany or uh, other countries in Europe, which is the typical state school building from the 1970s. It might be prefab. It might have lots of colors and um, lots of windows as well, usually very long corridors. And then, if you're familiar with London schools, you might end up visiting contemporary buildings with new design, purpose-built purpose schools, which have a lot of concrete, glass partitions, lots of windows, um, quite boxy and rectangles and squares, many levels and floors. Um, so this is mostly what we're familiar with the extreme of the Hogwarts type of building to the 1970s brutalist architecture with concrete and then the more contemporary design with glass and concrete together. But let's not forget that there are also buildings such as uh, independent schools, which can be, and this is a surprising aspect of English education, it can be in a building which is more looking like a home this dates from boarding schools, and if you're familiar with uh, English literature, Jane Austen, for instance, went to a boarding school, or her dad had a boarding school in his own house. So this is a very typical thing about English culture. They used they are used to have schools in someone's house, and then the building looks like a home with maybe added buildings to it. So if you go in the independent sector. You have a more homey look. You can also get into democratic schools with um, forest schools. So very, very different types of buildings. But if you're familiar with London private schools, a lot might be in normal Victorian houses that have been renovated with schooling in mind, which is not something you would see in France. In France, we usually have either purpose-built purpose that are modern, or purpose-built, which were for the monastic life or for theology and priests. But we don't usually convert a living house into a school. That is definitely a very UK thing. So I want to go back to our first idea of schools, not as far back as the Roman schools, which were for the privileged rich and usually used one room in the master's house and there would be a few teenagers invited, mostly male, and they would have a tutor coming. So I'm not talking about so far back. Let's go as far back as 1907. So let's picture the scene. You are in Rome and you are 
following the footsteps of Maria Montessori. Maria Montessori was a woman who was interested in um, working. She was a professional woman and she started working in the medical field. But then she's, she was interested in children's education. So Maria Montessori started a new type of school and she had the opportunity to rent a new apartment building. So imagine Rome, brand new apartment building in 1907, Maria Montessori rents a, an apartment and she asks friends, what shall I school, what shall I call my school? And her friends just say, well, it's a house, so why don't you call it Casa dei Bambini? So I translate roughly, so the house of children. So Maria equipped her new school Let's just remember it's an apartment. So imagine a flat. And I imagine it was quite high ceilings because in the, at the turn of the 20th century, we also built lovely flats with high ceilings. So in her new apartment building, Maria Montessori equipped the flat with a teacher's table, a blackboard, a stove for heating because it might not have been already installed in the flat. She had small chairs, armchairs and group tables for children. To that, she added a locked cabinet where she stored resources. So that's quite a spare um, functioning school. Now, Maria spent the first year looking at what the children were doing and observing while someone else was doing the teaching. And after a year, Maria, Maria Montessori started having ideas to improve the flat and the school. So she replaced heavy furniture with child-sized tables. She chose chairs that were light enough so that the children could move the furniture. And she also placed materials accessible to the youngest children, so on shelves um, at a maximum waist uh, height. And she expanded the range of practical activities because she realized the children loved practical activities. So this is, I would say, a very interesting recording of how a teacher or thinker or an educationalist designs the space where they're going to work. So Maria Montessori in Rome in a flat. Now, let's go back to modern times. Uh, 2019, I'm doing my first placement in a UK school in North London. Well, my experience of this building is quite worrying in many ways. So it looks from the outside like, um, I would say an industrial zone with a big fence a metal fence and then there's a courtyard and you come in and then you see buildings you could think if you didn't see school written on a billboard you could think it's an office building or it could be um, just maybe a factory or it could be um, a prison this is my first image of my first placement in a school. So this is a building that could be a corporate building or an institutionalized building such as a prison. Nothing very attractive. We are very far from Maria Montessori's flat that she developed as Casa, Casa dei Bambini. 
So in my first placement, I noticed that there was a few additions to the buildings um, following budget constraint. Whenever there was enough budget, we would build a new build. But the main center of the school was the street, they called it. So it was a long, long, vast corridor with a bridge over where people could walk, so a suspended walkway. On each side of this courtyard, there would be um, classrooms and there would be a first floor with more classrooms. Now, the courtyard was covered because let's not forget we're in England and the weather is not so friendly. So it's an inner courtyard with a roof and that big vast corridor is called the street. Now, if you visualize it, what it looks like is any institution that is dealing with a lot of people. So the f maybe there was more than a thousand three hundred students. Sadly, that inner courtyard, because of the way it was designed and because of the fact that all, all rooms were locked and every teacher had to have a lanyard to unlock the door, it gave me the strong impression that I was in an institution such as a penitentiary or a prison. So not such a good impression when you first come in. Now, this design I have noticed in many other buildings in the UK. So this is an, a typical thing, but in that particular school, because of the difficulty with behavior, and also because of the fact that everything had to be locked up to prevent degradation and vandalism, it gave me a strong feeling of being in a penitentiary. And this idea comes from the panopticon. What is the panopticon? Well, the panopticon is a concept introduced by an English philosopher, Jeremy Bentham. Jeremy Bentham developed an idea that if we could observe people, and when he says people, here he's thinking about the working class and people who have sometimes uh, criminal behavior. So he invented a disciplinary concept where architecture could control the individuals to reduce crime. So this is a pragmatic vision, even though he was a philosopher, but it doesn't question why people lead um, a life that leads to criminal acts. It just tries to sort it out. So his view was, imagine that massive courtyard with buildings all around it, and then there's an observation tower placed in, a, in the center, which allows a guard potentially to be able to overlook all the prison cells around him. And that panopticon idea became very, very popular. Jeremy Bentham designed it because from the tower, the guard could see inside every cell, but the inmates couldn't actually see the guard in the tower. So prisoners will never really know when they are being watched and where they're not, which would stress them. And the stress would, that's the idea, would prevent them from being act, being tempted to act in a criminal way because they would never know if they're gonna be seen and caught. So this vision of dealing with people is a manifestation of what Jeremy Bentham believed in. And his belief was that 
power should be visible and yet unverifiable. So it means that power should be able to see and be seen, but shouldn't be able to be checked. So with a constant surveillance system, Bentham believed that everybody in society would change their behavior and improve their behavior. Obviously, this was very popular in Victorian era because it was an era when we had lots of uh, rural exodus. Many people came to cities. There was obviously criminality because there was poverty and extreme poverty. So there was a fear that the working classes or the mob would wreak havoc in the city. So Jeremy Bentham's view of the panopticon was a way to control difficult populations. Now, because it, ha it became so popular in architecture, you can see that panopticon idea of the inner courtyard and the tower where we can see everybody from it, it became fashionable in prison design. But what worries me somehow is that I see this in a lot of school design as well. And it leads to an idea. It's the big brother surveillance. And I see a direct link between Jeremy Bentham's vision of the panopticon to George Orwell's vision in 1984. This is a society that believes that the ever-knowing eye upon us can make us change our attitude. So if you want a, a more vibrant image, it's the eye of Sauron in The Lord of the Rings, and Sauron can see everything. So the panopticon with its guard at the top of the tower is the one who can see what whatever happens in the prison and whatever happens in the school. So obviously, this way of seeing institutions has been criticized a lot. And one of the most famous critic of the panopticon theory is the French philosopher Michel Foucault. Uh, always trust on the French to have um, ideas against hierarchy and authority there. So Michel Foucault argued the panopticon's ultimate goal is to make the inmates conscious of that ever-present I. And this state of conscious visibility is cruel because you don't need to stay in your cell or in that classroom. Wherever you are, wherever you walk in that institutionalized building, you might be seen and observed without knowing. So it creates a level of stress. It's like being always under watch and being able to be captured at any time. So in Foucault's idea, constant surveillance is something that people internalize and it changes their behavior in the smallest details of their life. Foucault calls this, calls this a discipline blockade. So you are constantly disciplined, sequestered, administered, controlled by the weight of the gaze. I mean, it's a very potent architectural design, but what does it do to the mind? I see lots of religious undertones in the idea of the panopticon. It's that the eye of God that's always above us and that sees everything we do. And this, this eye, constant eye of God adds a morality emphasis on the building. This is not a building where we feel safe, nurtured, where we feel um, 
where we feel like we are individuals. This is a building where we are all units that can be observed and objectified. This is complete control. Now, a lot of institutions look like the Panopticon, if you have a, a look around. Remember that courtyard and then um, levels, floors, where we can see everything. So this look, this design is present in offices, bank buildings, and museums as well. But now it has a definition with an overuse of concrete and glass partition with metal um, trimmings. So if you look at the origin of the design, it's way older than Jeremy Bentham's Panopticon because it comes from the atrium. What is an atrium? Well, an atrium is 2,000 years old, so it's not a new feature of architecture. An atrium, um, and the plural is atria, an atrium is a very large open air, usually square or rectangle, and it's a space that can be covered if you live in a less warmer climes. So if you're in Rome, it would be open air. And if you're in England, it's going to be covered either by a roof with glass or by an actual uh, tin roof. So this atrium is a square and it's surrounded on each side by a building. Atriums, uh, is, an atrium is a common feature in ancient Roman dwellings because it provides lights, ventilation, and also there was usually a water recuperation system. So water would fall from the roof and would be led to gather uh, in the center of the atrium in a little fountain, and then it could be used for, I assume, washing and maybe cooking. So it had definitely a, a purpose for uh, the building and the people who lived in it. Now, modern atria, have been developed. It's a fashion from the 19th and the 20th century. And this is maybe why Jeremy Bentham's Panopticon follows this inner courtyard with the um, surrounding buildings on each side. Because it's a 19th and 20th century invention, it's a modernized Roman architectural input. So we modernized it in the 19th and 20th by adding more stories so on your, your inner courtyard might have one story or one floor, but some goes all the way up to six or seven floors, even more. And it usually has a glazed roof because in the 19th century, we managed to build bigger, larger roof with glass and glazing. Atria of very popular design feature because they obviously with um if they're open air or if they're covered in glass they provide a lot of space and light and it does make it spacious now the pr the problem with the atrium is that it it is at the center of the building so it makes everybody's walk around uh, you always have to end up at one point in the atrium so it creates a very centralized building and it's it's the core it's the center of the building so it is um overbearing the whole architectural organization of the building now designers love an atrium because they can add a garden 
usually plants love the um, excess light, so they're happy there. And also, if you design it with a fountain feature in the middle, you can have lots of shops. I mean, there's lots of beautiful atria in city centers. And if you go to uh, Southern European countries, the atrium is a lovely place to go to a cafe, for instance. But I'm really interested in the fact that in the UK in the 19th and 20th century, the atrium has been incorporated in institutionalized um, buildings to create a rather unpleasant um, architecture. So I'll give you an example. Imagine you are transported to the British Museum right now. So the British Museum used to have the British Library in um, in, a, in the middle, and then it was moved in the 80s to go near King's Cross. Now, the British Museum atrium is called the Great Court, and it's short for the Queen Elizabeth II Great Court. So this used to be an open-air square. It got covered and it was covered by a designer employed by a company called Foster and Partners. And this is the largest courtyard, covered courtyard in Europe. It has a rather spectacular glass roof with a glazed um, detail. And it's famous because there used to be, um, there is the reading room in the middle. So it's got that circular tower Again, this reminds me of Jeremy Bentham's Panopticon with, you know, the guard tower in the middle. So you have the reading room in the middle and then stairs all around the reading room. And then you have all the previous buildings of the British Museum and you can visit the different parts of the museum. So this is the center of the British Museum. Obviously, it was released uh, and opened and celebrated in 2020, so now it's 22 years old. It's a beautiful feat of engineering and architecture, and since December 2020, there's been 113 million people who have walked under the glass roof. Now, this is a museum, so you usually go there to spend a lovely afternoon with friends or family, or you can go there with a school. There's a cafe, there's lots of shops, you can buy knickknacks with um, museum artwork on it. So it, it makes for a pleasant experience. However, it has, um, first, the noise level always quite, quite intense in an atrium that's covered because of the lack of obviously um, acoustic treatment uh, and also it is a very big space so it can be a little bit overwhelming. Now it's a great advantage that we discovered in the 19th century the glaze atrium because we could use iron that we mined a lot and glass and it was cheap and it was light and it was beautiful. Nowadays we use um, metal or plastic but the point of the atrium is a little bit more different. I'm gonna flash back later on to my um, first employed work as a teacher where I was in another school, which was a new building. So it was designed by Bond Bryan Architects and the contractor was Wilmot Dixon, quite a big uh, contractor in the UK. So again, same building, a big, big, big rectangle, 
uh, with three or three floors, very high ceilings, and again a huge public space, an atrium again, looking a little bit like the one in the British Museum, without the fancy round tower in the middle, without the reading room. Now there were again these bridges on each floor. So it means that when you're walking on the first floor, you can see and look down on the people who are working, walking in the atrium on the ground floor. So similar feature, huge public space, huge area where everybody has to go to, to reach any other space in the school. So a very common feature. Now, Compared with traditional schools, which means the school, the Hogwarts cliched school with the old Gothic buildings and, and a sort of monastic religious purpose. So these traditional schools, what we want from modern schools is a completely different experience. Students want a learning environment where they're going to be spending time collaborating with each other and also where they could choose to work individually, maybe at hot desks, and where they can really find a space that suits the type of learning they're doing. So how do we design a school that includes the possibility of working in collaboration, but also the possibility in having independent work? And also, where does the teacher-led classroom setting fits in? This is a lot of dif difficult questions here we're raising. If we look at the practical requirements, what do we need to think about when we are working in a school? Well, sadly, the first thing we need to think about is safety. So this includes heavy fire doors. This also includes not being able to have someone outside school coming into the school. So we need lots of safety, um, lots of doors that are locked from the inside and also um, an outdoor area that is fenced. So we always have that sort of impression whenever we come to a school now, whether it's purpose-built or it's an old school, that we need to have fencing. And this is the sad reality. Schools are targets uh, from terrorists and also from mass shooters. So we have to protect our schools and fencing is usually a way to ensure safety. So we have these practical requirements such as safety, fire door, enough outdoor space to do a fire drill and have a meeting point for the fire drill, um, and also enough space in corridors in case of an emergency. If you have 1,300 students to evacuate, you need to have thought about this in your architectural plan. So. I'm going to go to the next practical requirement, and this is safeguarding. Safeguarding is making sure every child in the school has access to learning in a safe and nurturing way. So it means every child needs to be able to uh, use the facilities, toilets, uh, canteen, um, lifts if necessary. And every child is able to um, learn without the fear of being physically, morally, emotionally, or financially hurt. So for safeguarding, schools have been making different choices 
a lot of schools are trying to improve their access to toilets, for instance. And this is something that parents don't always think about when they choose a school. I always advise them to have a look at the toilet. Having very uh, open access to the toilets with no areas where people can hide is actually essential. And this is what a lot of schools now are having um, co door-free corridors leading to toilet cubicles so that they ensure that no one can be hiding in the toilets and either annoying someone who is about to use the toilets or hiding to do something in the toilets. So the toilets are definitely something that needs to be designed very carefully in a school. I'm not even talking about pro providing uh, gender-neutral cubicles. That's another way. Uh, but these are things to think about when we design schools. Another issue with safeguarding, we need now to think about how to protect schools from intruders, but also how to protect students from uh, sexual harassment or um, sex um, um, sexual attacks from other students. So we need to have a very good care of how we design toilets, but also changing rooms. Another practical requirement we need to think about is the number of students. And that is a very difficult one because we've had a few uh, years where there was a lot of babies born. I'm thinking of 2008 to 2010. There was a massive baby boom in the UK. And now we have these students who are going to reach year 11, year 10 or year 11. So we have big classroom sizes, which makes it difficult because some classrooms are just designed for 30 students. How do we deal with that? Um, we can't really push the walls. Some schools, and one designed, um, as I was mentioning, uh, one built in Hertfordshire by Bon Brand Architects with the Wilmot Dixon contractor, one had opted for uh, big corridors with seating areas that could seat 60 students. So that's two classrooms together. And the purpose was to let a teacher teach two, cl two, two classes at the same time. Now that sounds like a strange idea to put it in a corridor. So imagine you're walking in a corridor and suddenly the corridor enlarges to the right side and you have a seating area that fits 60 students. That might be a good use of space if you want to have one teacher who is teaching and the, the other one who is assisting. But the problem is noise level. Can you imagine the sound when other classes are using the corridor to walk from one part of the school to another while you're trying to teach in what is basically an enlarged corridor? This is not good planning, good architectural design. And yet, this, this particular school I worked at, the uh, school was designed in 2015 and the students moved in in 2019. So, go figure. Now, another very practical thing we need to think about is the cost, and that is a major issue anywhere in the world. But the last very big practical requirement we need to think about when we think about arch architecture and building schools is the concentration of students per meter square. And now this is a very typical thing about island nations, because when I think about my schools, uh, in France, where I'm, where I'm from, we don't usually have so many restrictions in meter square um, availability. 
because France has a lot of um, space, unless you're in Paris or in a very busy city centre, most schools are quite large and are designed with big corridors in France. Now, in the UK, it's not the same. I think there is maybe a shortage of um, building space or maybe a difficulty to acquire land to build uh, public schools, state schools. But the fact is, a lot of state schools in the UK are short of meter square space, which means they build um, schools that are quite restricted in scope. And when you have a baby boom year, 12 years down the line, you get crammed classroom with too many chairs, too many tables, children who are growing and not enough space to walk around the tables and chairs. And you might think it's a detail, but any ask any teacher and they'll tell you that very often we need to walk fast from one place to the next in the classroom. And because of the lack of available space, we bump into tables and chairs very often. And in my first year of teaching, it was incredible the number of blues I had on my thighs and legs because I was constantly having to navigate, circulate around tables and chairs and students move chairs by using them. And you always end up with um, a big blue. So it is definitely an issue I noticed in England, maybe because it's an island, maybe because of the property system here. But I didn't have that experience in France where I felt that classrooms were bigger. Now, if we look at in the nitty gritty aspect of school planning for building and architecture, research can show that the use of physical space makes a big difference to learning, but it hasn't been evidenced and researched enough. I mean, there are so many factors at stake. What studies have provided evidence on is that the organi organizational, social, and cultural aspects of a school influences how the physical space is used. So I'll give you an example. If you're in a school which is very um, strict, very conservative, and very disciplinarian in its, in its teaching or in its ethos, the way space is going to be used is going to be very different from a school that wants to nurture collaborative learning and group work and maybe socializing more. So what matters in school design and school architecture is to really have a plan where we align the school ethos to the school building. And only that way can we make sure that the space is going to improve the learning experience. So there is a correlation between school ethos and learning experience. So what I'm hoping is that in order to improve school results, we're going to think about planning school buildings and building innovations better so that we have a better context for learning. So before I get into talking about the most common features of school buildings in the UK, I'm going to just let you have a breather with the news. Stay tuned.
have teamed up with the Witherslack Group to bring you a fantastic face-to-face meetup in Manchester next month. Tickets are free, with lunch included, and you'll be met with a host of amazing speakers. Sign up for Your Voice now at witherslackgroup.co.uk forward slash Your Voice 2022. Hi. I'm Charlie Burley, the Teacher's Health Coach, and I want to talk to you about the first ever health and wellbeing event for educators, Rewriting Wellbeing. It's a full day dedicated to improving your health as a teacher through looking at your nutrition, movement, mindset, workload, and wellbeing in school. You'll hear from our incredible lineup of speakers, including Andrew Cowley, Jen Foster, Kimberly Wilson, Simon Bolger, and many more. There'll be talks, workshops, and time to network with like-minded colleagues. We'll look after you all day with brunch, lunch, and all the refreshments. You'll get to meet our incredible speakers and our amazing team of ambassadors from the education space. It's a non-profit event with all proceeds going to the amazing education charity EdSupport. This isn't one to miss. I look forward to seeing you there on the 22nd of October at Etc Venues St Paul's in London. You can search Rewriting Wellbeing on the Eventbrite website to find out more. This episode of Teachers Talk Radio has been made possible with support from Witherslack Group, the UK's leading provider of SEN education and care. They're here to support you too through an ever-growing offer of free resources, including webinars, podcasts, articles and events aimed at supporting teaching professionals like you. Visit their website at www.witherslackgroup.co.uk to find out more. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News. The TES magazine focuses on fears of a teacher training shortage as a report reveals ITT cold spots. The report in the magazine says the Department for Education in England has been warned that it must urgently tackle teacher training cold spots as analysis reveals recruitment issues across England. The analysis suggests that multiple regions in England face losing swathes of places on courses after a government shake-up cut initial teacher training provided numbers by a quarter. Recent results of the second and final rounds of the DfE's re-accreditation process showed that around 25% of existing providers could be lost. The teacher training sector is now calling for a pragmatic and realistic approach to ensuring trainees can access courses in all parts of the country. This comes at a time when the number of teachers entering the profession is falling. The North East is facing the sharpest potential loss as 32% of trainee places available last year are under threat. The East and South West regions also face significant cuts of around 24%. The report acknowledges that some new providers have received approval to start offering courses from 2024, but others within the sector are concerned that this will not fully resolve the issues. Providers have 15 days to lodge an application to appeal loss of accreditation. Teams of the UK's most talented young tradespeople are to begin competing in the World Skills Competition 2022. The competition traditionally held in just one country is, this year, taking in smaller events across the world. The event, which sees a UK team of 35 travel around the globe, begins in Stuttgart, Germany on the 4th of October and will end on November the 26th in Salzburg, Austria. 
the UK team will be looking to improve on a 12th place finish at the 2019 event. FE Week features details of the competitors and their areas of specialism, which include toolmaking, milling, web development and cybersecurity. Winners for each category will be announced during closing ceremonies for each competition, with medals given to those achieving gold, silver or bronze. Medals of excellence will be given to those judged to have reached world-class standard in their skill. In Wales, First Minister Mark Drakeford has taken part in an online Q&A session with school pupils. The session, hosted by The Politics Project, gives opportunities for schools to support learners in realising one of the four purposes of the Curriculum for Wales, becoming ethical, informed citizens of Wales and the world. Questions range from finding out about the politician's journey into politics, climate change and whether Wales can indeed win the World Cup. And finally, in South Africa, the government has issued a press release focusing on the recruitment of 25,000 education assistants and general school assistants for both public and special schools. The recruitment drive is part of the Presidential Youth Employment Initiative. Education assistants will support teachers with administrative tasks, classroom management, sports coaching and cultural activities, whilst the general assistants will focus on maintenance, cleaning and general admin. The programme is part of a drive to improve standards within schools in the country, as well as increasing employment opportunities. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, this week is World Space Week. Space is such a vast topic, there's always something you can find out that could potentially be a hook for a lesson. The theme this year is sustainability. I only found out about Space Week as I was browsing the internet. This got me thinking about how amazing the internet is and how so much information is at our fingertips. This week, I'm going to look at finding inspiration for a lesson using information I would never have known about without the amazing technology of the internet. During my research, I've discovered that there are a number of websites out there dedicated to awareness days. I've compiled a list of genuine official awareness days to motivate your form, classes, colleagues or even yourself from now until the end of term. In October, we have Buy British Day, National Poetry Day, National Kale Day, World Octopus Day and World Porridge Day. This one sounds funny, but it's actually to raise awareness for children in poverty in developing countries. Local Radio Day. To celebrate this, our very own Tom Rogers is going to stop talking every time he goes under a bridge. Still in October, we have National Roast Pheasant Day, UK Coffee Week, Apple Day, Global Champagne Day, International Stammering Awareness Day, World Tripe Day, National Pumpkin Day, American Beer Day, National Black Cat Day and Wild Foods Day. There's not much information on Wild Foods Day, but if you do go all bear grills, please do let us know how it went. Ending October, we have RSPB Feed the Birds Day. Please feed the birds more than just one day. In November, there's World Vegan Day, National Stress Awareness Day, Roast Dinner Day, International Stout Day and National Hugger Bear Day. I'd advise against hugging a real bear, however, it would make a very engaging lesson. Great British Game Week. British Pudding Day, Templiano Day and Zinfandel Day are followed by Homemade Bread Day. I think this is here to soak up all the wine. Still staying in November, there's National Gingerbread Day, National Eater Cranberry Day, the fruit, not a band member. The end of November brings us White Ribbon Day. Days of interest in December before we break up are Fuel Poverty Awareness Day, Christmas Jumper Day and National Hot Chocolate Day. The internet is an amazing resource for information. I hope you can find inspiration and motivation in your next search. 
I'm Steve Woods, and that was Two Minute Tech. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Thank you for following the news, dear listeners. So, we were talking about school and architecture in the UK. What are the common features of most schools in the UK? Well, if we think about um, the normal 1970s up to, uh, to 2020 buildings, so we can think about prefab, we can think about these big corporate buildings that look slightly like um, the sort of building you would find in an industrial area. You might have also in older historical buildings a lack of space inside the classroom. I was referring to the fact that sometimes we have too many tables and chairs and it makes walking in the classroom difficult which affects teaching because you should be able to walk around and get easy access to the books that the children are using so that you can give instant feedback and also so that you can give personal feedback discreetly um, coming closer to the child and not having to say something very loud in front of the rest of the class. Now, another issue you can find in design of schools is more about classroom furniture. That's less architectural and more design. We have tables that are supposed to be used, uh, tables and chairs that are supposed to be used by students from year seven, sometimes all the way to year 13. Now, I don't know if you've ever compared the height and size of a child in year seven, but they are 11 years old. They haven't yet hit puberty, whereas in year 13, they are young adults. So we expect these people, very different ages and very different development physically, to use the same table and chairs. So you end up having little year seven who are almost with their feet not touching the ground. And then the worst is with my year 11, because we have very big class sizes, up to 32 in my current school. So you have 32 teenage boys who are very, very tall and quite big, and they can't fit in on their chairs with the tables in the classroom. So this is a big issue about design and also the fact that we have spaces that are meant to fit everybody, but are only able to fit maybe the youngest classes. Now, we also have a lack of flexibility of use because it's a great idea to think that we're going to have tables put together as rectangles in order to do group work. And that's that's a great plan. But it is not practical when you have to constantly rework the setting because some teachers need to be able to walk around to do um, this feedback I, I mentioned, particularly when we focus on writing. So some teachers favor having tables that are separated and some teachers favor having group tables. And because we don't have enough meter square of space available in most UK schools, you can't have one classroom dedicated to pair or group work and one classroom dedicated to separate tables. So there is no flexibility of use in the setting of these classrooms. Now there is another issue with architectural design of schools in this country, and it is the lack of sports facilities. Most schools manage to have a hall, 
or a gymnasium. Some schools are lucky to have a dance room and a hall and a separate theater, but some schools have to fit all in one. So the hall is where students do PE, and then when there's, there's a school play, it has to become the theater. And it's just very difficult to store all the tables and all the equipment that is needed when it's a multi-use room. Another really sad uh, design issue we have in UK schools is the disparity between private schools and state schools. I have been to private schools and I've worked in private schools that had their own tennis, cricket, rugby, football court, as well as a swimming pool an indoor swimming pool on site. And I have noticed that state schools rarely, extremely rarely have access to their own swimming pool facility. I have less than a mile away from my house, a very respected secondary school in North London that used to have a swimming pool. It was built in the seventies and it was used to teach students how to swim. Sadly, because of political decisions in the 80s, the swimming pool was sold to provide more money to run the school. So now, a few years down the lane, chunks of the school field have been sold to other schools, private or free school. The swimming pool has disappeared and it's a loss for the students and for the community. Now, there is also a general trend I noticed in many, many schools, and not just in the UK, but also in France, it's a lack of access to nature. There is too much thought spent on the building itself and not enough on accessing nature. And when I mean nature, I don't just mean having a grassy area at the front of the school, because the irony of another local school to me is that they have a huge field covered in beautiful green lush grass. And then when I talked to the students and I visited the school, I was told we are not allowed to step on the grass. So for me, this is a tragedy. This is a school that has teenagers in it for seven hours a day, and they're not allowed to step onto the grass for lunch or just for walking. This is such an example of how even having the, the greatest facilities, if the school ethos is not right, the learning experience is not excellent. Another issue in uh, landscaping design, it's no trees, or no exposure to actual soil. And when I mean soil, I mean being able to smell the soil has been proven scientifically to help with mental health. Petrichor, which is the smell of the rain falling on the soil, mostly in the forest, but in any, um, any area which is a nature area, has a healing effect and reduces levels of depression. We know there is a crisis in mental health in teenagers in the UK that has been exacerbated with COVID. So the fact that we still design schools with very little access to nature and with no access to trees or the benefits of smelling that petrichor or the soil is a missed opportunity, in my opinion. So if we summarize, with architecture in schools, we have issues of overcrowding, 
rooms that are too small, designed for 29 students, but yet there's 33 students. A shocking thing is the disappearance of school libraries. They're replaced by computers, as if having a few desks with computers could replace a very well-selected range of books and novels. The, we have also the big issue of no ventilation and the absence of EPA filters in classrooms. I'm not just talking about COVID prevention. I'm talking about thinking of the next five to 10 years, we are likely to have more and more issues with airborne diseases that are transmitted from animal species to humans if we do not invest in good quality ventilation to make sure this reduces the contamination of airborne diseases we are failing in designing architecture in schools there's a lack of maintenance in many schools ask any teachers or any students and they will tell you what is broken and for how many months it has been broken a big big thing that we underestimate is acoustics. We need to make sure the buildings we're designing are looking light and airy, but are also acoustically sound. I'll give you an example. All these atria with an inner courtyard and a sky um, glazed roof, with these levels on each side, they usually are quite noisy environments because of the glass and the fact that the sound rever reverberates on the glass partitions. So when a thousand students change classroom and walk all along these inner courtyards and the floors and the skywalks, it's a cacophony. And we do not take that into account enough when we build schools. And I did mention space and size inadequacy. I'll give you an example. A new lab has been designed in my current school. It's It was two classrooms. The wall that partitioned it had been taken off and it created one massive lab. Now that sounds great, except they didn't invest in buying a new digital board. So we are left with a tiny board that was just about bearable in one classroom. But now we have the space of two classes in one and the digital board can't be seen by half of the of the tables at the back. So space inadequacy, overcrowding, acoustic issues, lack of maintenance, no ventilation, and the absence of school library makes for a deadly cocktail where we end up with schools that are not fit for purpose. Well, what are the solutions? Well, they're quite simple. We need responsible innovation. What is that? Well, it's a concept that is slowly developing that aims to balance economic pressures, social needs, cultural particularities, and environmental needs, so that when we design a school building, we mesh all these needs and all these restrictions to find responsible solutions. And this is in the perspective of dealing with future needs as well. So one thing that is too rarely considered is being environmentally friendly and this is something we're going to have to deal with because we are building more and more concrete and glass structures these big boxes with lots of glass what is going to happen to these buildings when the temperature rises and we have the sun 
pounding on the glass for up to three or four months in the summer. Temperatures will rise inside it, yet we'll we're going to have to spend more money to keep it cool. We need to think of solutions. Anticipation is the key. Anticipation is thinking about what's coming at the corner and how to, to deal with it. So I'm thinking of temperature rises. I'm thinking about uh, flooding. Some schools have been built on a riverbed because it's cheap land. We'd, we're not thinking about flash flooding. These are the realities we are going to have to face in the five to 10 years ahead. We need to have a plan, something in place to be able to innovate. And this is due to a lack of reflexivity because too often we do not look at the building with a critical mind. It's the same way we need to look at the way we educate, education policies, standards, values, beliefs. We do not question ourselves enough. We need to facilitate critical examination of our buildings and we need to have a very, a very objective, open-minded way of seeing how we design buildings. We are too often copying the idea of the atrium from Roman times because we've seen it in 19th century design, like at the British Museum, and then we think it's the best for an institution. But we forget that there is that feeling of uh, being observed at all times, as in the panopticon. These values are antiquated values. We need to find a new way of designing. And to achieve that reflexivity, we need more democratic inputs. And I'm gonna say again, we need to listen to the people who work in these buildings. And the people who work in these buildings are teachers, caretakers, cleaners, teaching assistants, students, and SLT. We need to ask the frontline workers what they would like the building to do for them. And this also includes listening to whistleblowers when there's an issue with the managerial system. And I call that inclusion. If we do not include all the users in the designing of the school building, we will never achieve a positive learning space. Inclusion means that we need to have a frame assumption that not just one person can sort out the building. It shouldn't just be the designing board with the architects. It shouldn't just be the governors. It should be everybody who's gonna be Who's going to have to use the building. Now that doesn't mean that every stakeholder has to be there at every decision. That wouldn't work. You need someone, and usually it's an architect, to have the decision-making uh, powers, but the participatory process needs to happen from the bottom to the top. We are not going to ask the caretaker to give his opinion on every drawing of the architects and designers. What we're gonna ask is the architect and the designer to interview the caretaker and listen to the caretaker at that stage of the designing process, the same way they would listen to the chair of governors and the head teacher, because the caretaker is the one who's gonna every day have to lock every door, check that every window is closed. So if the caretaker has to constantly walk in the building and go back to the atrium, because we still think of buildings in a Roman 
ancient Rome way, where everybody has to go through the atrium at one point in the day. This is adding time that is wasted. So we need to think in a different way. And to achieve that inclusion, that democratic architectural process, we need responsiveness. Responsiveness is when we are creating innovation that is responsible. That, and that requires a capacity to change shape or direction if there's an issue. And it's also being able to see what public values and changing circumstances we have in our societies. So I talked about environmental crisis. We need to make sure our buildings are environmentally sound, which means that they don't get too hot when it's very hot in the summer and that they are warm in the winter. And we're gonna hear more about architecture and schools this winter because we have an energy crisis and teachers have been told we're going to wait a little bit longer before we switch the heating on. So we're going to have students who are cold in classrooms this winter. How do we stop buildings from getting so cold in the winter and so hot in the summer? There's many ways to do that. Passive houses are, offer techniques that could be used in architecture for schools. I'm going to quote um, a person. This is from a study called Continuity and Conflict in School Design, a case study from Building Schools for the Future by uh, Leroy Smith, Stables and Daniels. It was published in 2015. So I'm going I'm to quote the architect who designed a school. I joined the project after we had won the bid. And to me, the whole process of developing the design with the school after that seemed wrong. I expected open, informed and dynamic discussions held within openly stated constraints of affordability. Instead, we got only very limited contact with the school, very limited contact carefully choreographed by the main contractor so that we didn't say a word out of place. The school probably felt they should have had a lot more to say in the development of the design than they ended up having. So here, this is an architect who's saying that they didn't have enough time to discuss what the school needed. This is not good architecture, and yet this is what's happening. So an absence of research focused on inclusion of community perspectives has an impact on school design. We do not yet know because we don't have enough data. There has been though an increasing recognition that schools function better when they have multi-use spaces that the community, the local people around the school can use. So I'll give you an example. Schools need extra money because their budgets have been cut in real terms since 2010. So schools usually try to get money from the local community. So they offer to let the hall for venues, for birthday parties, for um, any events that are needed. And sometimes when they have specific um, offers in their school, for instance, if they're lucky enough to have a dance studio or a squash studio, or a theater, they can also let it to individuals who want to do a music concert or any other celebrations. This is a great way to bring extra funds to the school, but this is 
this is something that needs to be designed properly. I'll give you an example. I've attended birthday parties in local schools where a parent has rented the school hall and the kitchen. So that's great because it means the students um, are celebrating together in their local school, which they're familiar with, and everybody knows how to commute there because everybody attends the school. Now, the problem is when the school is designed, the hall is usually something, a place that we can all access from the, the inside of the school building. So it means that parents who are renting the hall can use or can access, even, even though they're not meant to, they can access classrooms. Now that leads to problems of safeguarding because in the classrooms, there are pictures of the students, there's the student of the week board, there's the um, many, many posters made by the students. So there's a very big issue of safeguarding and confidentiality when you let your classrooms be seen by people who rent some areas in your school. This is something that could be easily solved with good architecture and good design. You would need a separate entry to the hall, maybe one that the caretaker could manage, and the hall should be able to be used without anyone having to walk past the classrooms. So it's a simple, maybe, matter of changing one way of working with the corridors, but this is something that should be thought about and planned. I'll give you an example of how to think about being inclusive in design and architecture and also in how we occupy the space. I had the most easy access to the photocopy machine. Outside my classroom, there would be a corridor and then there would be a printing machine and then the corridor leading to the toilet. So for me, it was ideal. I would just come out of my classroom, start my photocopying, leave the machine to do its job, use the toilet facilities, come out of the toilet facilities, grab my printed sheets, go back to my classroom. And I could do that in less than seven minutes. As a teacher, when you know you have 30 minutes break, knowing that well, the time you spend going to the toilet is used to get your photocopying going is such a great use of my time. Now, without any um, without asking us, the people who are using the corridor, the people who have their classrooms, the teachers who have their classroom on the corridor, the photocopying machine has been moved to another part of the building, which means now if I need to photocopy something, I'm going to have to either not use the toilet or spend half of my break. So this is a simple use of space, but because the staff is never involved in decision-making as far as architecture and design is concerned, this creates um, shrinking of the teacher time, and we all know how short of time we are already. Now, this is on the side of the teachers, obviously, but this is, this is also accurate for children if the toilets are in different parts of the building and then it's more than five minutes walk to the classroom, this creates a shortage of toilet facilities. And we end up having students who suffer from physical ailments due to them preventing themselves to go to the toilet when they need to. This can lead to kidney dysfunction. This is serious medical issues. This is happening to teachers, and to students. So architecture in schools is also providing enough cubicles 
for boys and girls and non-neutral um, genders and also enough at every level particularly if we have flaws now what do students want in their school building because they are the users they are the ultimate users and they are the biggest group represented in a school number wise so students usually say that they want their new school to be different from traditional old school plans they want innovative learning environments that foster a sense of community and belonging what does that mean it means they want a place where they can socialize and i'm thinking back at my first example when i talked about my secondary school that had a former chapel that was now renovated as a cafeteria where we could just hang out whenever we wanted this is what students want they want their own space teachers have a staff room and can i remind you that in some schools now there are no staff rooms because um, of a lack of space and that's another issue but students need their student room they need to have bean bags and um, lots of places to hang out without the adult gaze being omnipresent they will make a safe space because they will respect it if they're given the means to enjoy the space so students want informal social space which are not learning based they also want space to learn independently in their own time and as well as space to learn together as group and this is something i've noticed in danish schools they have great socializing spaces they have a lot of access to space which is functional with cool design not that expensive but that is brightly colored and inclusive where everyone wants to hang out and those who don't want to can also use the more independent spaces a sense of belonging is what needs to be created in architecture in school and it has to be underpinning the values of the school when school foster community values when there's openness and an inviting social space students feel recognized and appreciated now on the other side of the spectrum in schools that focus on behavior management surveillance with the panopticon influence space and they really think oh we can't have a socialized space because of vandalism and everything is about preventing students from doing things then it creates a space that is about surveillance and big brother and i'll give you an example in this big atrium that in this big atrium that we see in a lot of schools you do not see children hanging around they do not stay in that atrium even though it's light and airy because it's got these many floors openness to it children don't treat it as a space they want to spend time into and it just becomes a very big vast corridor an atrium if it leads to increased surveillance is not a space that the students are going to use what a waste of space so please when you walk around your school tomorrow or when you visit a school on an open evening or an open day have a look at it how does it work do you have to constantly go back to a main courtyard a main atrium 
Or can you go to different parts of the school without having to retrace your steps? What is the feeling when you walk in the school? What about the classroom? Are they crammed with tables? Are there classrooms that offer group tables? Are there classrooms that offer a different setup? Are there places for students to just hang out? Do students have access to the open nature? And if not, do they have space outdoors when they can just chill and hang out between lessons or at break time? This is a very important thing because we know that students want a quiet retreat space. They want to have a space where they can focus on their own learning, a space that they can use in their own time, but also where they can ask teachers for questions in order to have a more one-to-one -one, uh, relationship. And this is definitely a major component of student autonomy. This has been described in studies I'll quote Sugar, Dottier and Hyatson in 2016 and Nichols and Vasudevan in 2018. A lot of students want big open learning spaces as well as quiet retreat spaces. Because think about that panopticon. We can't be a whole seven hours a day in a space where we are exposed to the gaze of everyone and of SLT or staff. We need to have space where we feel we can relax and no one's staring at us. And this is what leads me to mention what teachers want as well. Because let's be honest, we saw it with the COVID pandemic and the use of bubbles in classrooms. What teachers really want is not a nomadic teaching. They want their own classroom because they want to be able to mark it as their territory, have their own displays, decorated teachers are human beings and we need our den so each teacher enjoys treating their classroom as their den and they're going to put a shelf with books that are important to her, to them or her they're going to put all the materials and resources they need and they will be able to know where it is there's nothing worse than having to teach in a room and realizing that you don't have all the glues and the books you need. And it's, it's a very stressful, anxiety-prone experience. And also, many teachers experience increased feelings of surveillance when they are asked to work in open plant schools. This is a 1990s corporate idea, the open plan, isn't it? It's in order to be able to control whatever the staff is doing. Does it work in schools? I'm sure there's opportunities to, to research it, but my feeling is sometimes a teacher wants a quiet environment and a teacher wants to close the classroom door and be separated from the hustle and bustle of the corridor and focus on their task with their students. I personally would not feel comfortable working in a school where the policy is to keep all the doors in the corridor opened. I like quiet and I think it's also important to have my own classroom. What matters in architecture in school is to adapt teaching techniques to suit the space. And the problem is when the space is difficult to use. But rather than innovative learning environments determining school practices, it seems like a good school leader a good principal or a good head teacher is the one that, who's going to recognize that a new learning space 
or a difficult learning space is still an invitation to do things differently and to adapt. And I think it shows. It's always in leadership, isn't it? What are the barriers that are created in schools? Well, there's inflexible designs. You can't push the walls, we know that. There's also the lack of social space. Some schools don't have a staff room. Some schools don't even have a school library. And also the absence of a quiet space. We have neurodiverse students who are very vulnerable to noise and uh, background noise. We need to have limitation of sound and also space that feels safe. So this is definitely a very big barrier to learning. There might be ways to remedy that by using glass partition or acoustic treatment, but let's not be naive. These are costly affairs. Once the building is already there, it is difficult to find the budget to um, change the building. But it has been proven that inadequate social space, lack of social space, poor acoustics, not enough ventilation and temperature control affects learning. So architecture is very important. But the problem, I would say, is when it's compounded with overly bureaucratic response to procedures. If it takes you more than a year to get a blind fix, the learning environment is at risk. Now, I just wanted to uh, give you one example of a school and you can virtually visit it. I would like to know your thoughts about it. This is this school, um, I haven't visited it and that's why I've only used a virtual um, visit. It's available on the website. So the school is called Holland Park School. So Holland Park is an affluent Lon London uh, location. It has 1,500 students. It's in West London. The designers were Ada's architects and they designed, their brief was simple. It was design a school that doesn't look like a school. So they came up with a six-story school building with a very unusual facade, a sort of undulating facade made of bronze and copper that looks almost like organic animal kind of skin. And then inside the building, it has still a, a rectangle shape and an atrium, again, that Roman, ancient Rome, architectural default setting I see in so many institutions. So this is Holland Park School. But what's special about Holland Park is that it has glass partitions everywhere. So it means that wherever you are, you can be seen. How does it affect the teachers? How does it affect the students? I understand it's an architectural choice to encourage positive behavior, but what does the weight of the gaze do on the people's shoulders? Is it Big Brother? Or is it just feeling like we are in a little aquarium where we can just get on more with our learning? I'm not sure. Have a look at Holland Park School. Do the virtual uh, visit online. And I'd love to, to have your thoughts on the matter. My online resources today were um, basically 
from a study that, if you fancy reading, is available online. It's called Responsible Innovation in School Design, a Systematic Review by Joanne Deppler and Kathleen Aikens. Responsible Innovation in School Design, a Systematic Review. Lots of food for thought, but please let me know what you think. Is your building helping you to teach or is it a hindrance? Can you see a future for the sort of building with glass partition and concrete and lots of um, gaze? Is it the future or do we have to think about smaller structures, maybe more adapted to the environment with a better access to nature? These are questions for the future. I hope you enjoyed this uh, little detour via architecture and design. This is something I'm interested about at the moment. I would love to hear your thoughts. Contact me on Twitter at ProfProfMFL. It's always a pleasure to be in your company. Have a lovely week, dear listeners. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.